Hi, I'm Dr. Tony Rivera. I serve as the Director of Educational Assessment at Marion University, and welcome to this episode of Data Talk. Data Talk usually seeks to highlight the people on campus involved in assessment, the people who read your responses to various assessments and use data to inform curricular and co-curricular improvements. But today we are changing things up a bit because we have a leading scholar of assessment, high-impact practices, and student engagement in the studio. Our guest today is Dr. Jillian Kinsey. Jillian is the Associate Director for the Indiana University Center for Post-Secondary Research and the National Survey of Student Engagement, as well as a Senior Scholar with the National Institute for Learning Outcomes Assessment. Jillian earned her Bachelor's in Psychology and Master's in Post-Secondary Education, both from Cleveland State University, and earned her PhD in Higher Education with a minor in Women's Studies from Indiana University. She's a co-author of books like Assessment in Student Affairs, Using Evidence of Student Learning to Improve Higher Education, and has contributed to the Handbook of Student Affairs Administration. She's also a co-editor of the new books Delivering on the Promise of High-Impact Practices and Radical Reimagining for Student Success in Higher Education. Jillian Kinsey, welcome to Data Talk. Thank you so much, Tony. I'm so glad to be with you. This is fabulous. I have a ton of questions for you. I wanted to start kind of looking at your experience after Cleveland State. So, you know, my my first job in higher education was in in residence life, and I saw that that you as well kind of got your got your start in oh, residence life. Yes, that takes me back. Uh, yes, yeah. yes, I, you absolutely are correct at your your investigative work. I did start my career in residence life, but I had a super position because my position was to serve as the academic advisor for all the students living in residence. So it had this, uh, what I think is really a nice holistic role in um, serving students in a way that blended their co-curricular life and their personal life with where they were headed in their educational paths. How do you see that informing your all your contributions to the student affairs profession as a researcher. Oh, my gosh. I think it was foundational in my uh, how I saw the field and how I learned to interact with faculty members and deans immediately. So first out of in my career, I was interacting with deans and faculty members from all the different departments because it was part of our job to understand what was going on and all of the academic departments where our students were majoring or struggling in some cases and needed extra learning support. So I really felt like it was the perfect blend of attention to what students were doing in their personal lives Mm -hmm. (laughs) by virtue of being in a residence hall, but also how they were living their best academic selves. Uh, So it was really, I just think it was absolutely foundational. And I wonder if I had not had that kind of experience in my first job that I would have really understood the importance of holistic student development. And then looking at your doctoral experience, I was a higher ed major and gender studies minor at, at IU. And I'm, I'm just so curious, like, what was your experience like there? Well, you know, I, I came to IU when I did my doctorate to really try and better understand what I thought were salient aspects of the student experience. And one of those is gender identity, other issues, certainly race, ethnicity, all of those intersectional identities that students bring with them to college. So it always had... A, a real interest to me. And then I wanted to understand a little bit more of the theoretical and mm-hmm. the historical and the more research side of that work. So that's what got me into it. And I really appreciated the many theories that I was then able to layer on to my understanding about student development from a theoretical feminist theory lens and, and really bringing different approaches and perspectives that were not part of my training or experience prior. I, I had an intuitive sense for how what they might mean for our work, but I don't think I understood their full impact in terms of how much they might influence. Things like Nell Noddings and the ethic of care 
yeah. in work. As much as that's a student affairs, I think student affairs would very much claim that. It also has some really strong feminist perspective. Right. So thinking about all of that really was a nice way to blend a different area or dimension of my academic interests with what I was already doing in practice regularly. Obviously, looking back over your career, I mean, you've made so many significant contributions to the field. Very kind, Tony. I mean, as a doctoral student, so like for me, my when I think about my doctoral experience, I feel like, you know, it was very humbling in terms of, you know, you're sending things off for conferences, for publication, and you're getting feedback that can be tough to read. And, and I, so it was very humbling. Like, when did you feel like, hey, I'm going to do big things in this in this field? I still feel humbled every day. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It still surprises me when I see my work referenced. I, you know, I mean, it tickles me and yeah. it also shocks me to think about at the same time. And I really think that as scholars and as educators, we're always trying to work to improve, get better at what we do, investigate the next new angle, and critique things. So, you know, I have to say that in some ways, the perspective of being a scholar and always asking questions is very much who I am as a person. And yeah. my spouse will always tease and say, why do you ask so many questions? <laughs> and I think I can't help it. I've been like that since I've been a kid, that that's my orientation to trying to understand things is to keep asking questions. And I feel like as a scholar, that's what it's all about, is just keep asking questions and keep trying to seek information that will help enrich your perspective and help you better understand whatever it is that you're observing. I mean, there have to be times where you have those questions, but you have to make the decision of like, okay, I, I just can't that pursue that. That is so that. hard. Oh yeah. <laughs> my gosh, that is just the hardest part of being a scholar is what are all the things that end up on the cutting room floor that we just can't pack into this one article or, you know, cutting. I, I was talking with a, an author or a co-editors yesterday or had an email exchange and we were talking about what deserves to be represented in a new sense of belonging text. And they were saying we have 25 valid chapters and we have to make some really hard decisions about how this will work. You know, first I wanted to say, well, good luck with that, because <laughs> if you have 25 worthwhile submissions, that's going to be really difficult. And and then thinking about what's the trajectory, what's the story you want to tell in this? And I'm eager to hear what they come up with. But yeah. I think it's a it's a challenge that all scholars have is what are the questions that we can't address? What are the limitations? What are What's our best argument or our best presentation of information or data and, and research in this piece? And then what do we do with all the rest of the things? Do we take them up in another way or do we have to just leave them on the cutting room floor? I probably have more on the cutting room floor than I actually have out in actual wow. production. Way more. Triple. Triple wow. the amount that's wow. still on the cutting room floor. I'm curious, changing gears a bit, I know you also were faculty in the, the higher ed and student affairs program, like tying it to your scholarship, your recent publication. So in a chapter you co-wrote with Pat Hutchings and Natasha Jankowski in using evidence of student learning to improve higher education, you break down the assessment cycle. You talk about identifying outcomes and collecting data considered pretty easy, analyzing data and sharing results a little bit harder and then implementing changes and assessing the impact of those changes are really the hardest parts of the cycle. If you had a, a magic wand and can change anything about the higher education student affairs graduate curriculum, what would be some changes to help future professionals better address the hardest parts of the assessment cycle? Or conversely, are there things that they're actually doing well? There's you know strengths of the curriculum that are, are helping prepare future Practitioner. Thanks. Thanks for the good question, Tony. I think it's a really, it's an important notion that Natasha and Pat and I suggested is part of the challenge of doing good assessment work. And I think as a broad characterization, the characterization holds still that we are good at collecting information. We are good at maybe doing some interpretation of it, but then in terms of taking action on that information, there is an extent to which either we don't feel that that's the 
our job or our role, and we're kind of looking around to see who should take on that action-oriented role, or we just aren't really sure what action is the right step. We can analyze it, but we can't convert that into action. And then we're just, I would argue, we're still not always good at kind of thinking about what do we hope to see different in this image? What is it that we hope to affect? And that's a, that's a lot to imagine and to envision. So I understand the challenge. Where I think, actually, to get to your question explicitly, where student affairs has a particular expertise to lend to this that's perhaps undervalued is their much more action-oriented orientation mm -hmm. to their work. They want to solve the problem, fix the problem, make it better, enrich it. You know, it's that is the orientation that I think, and that's partly because I think that's the kind of person drawn to the field, mm -hmm. but it's also really cultivated in the practice <laughs> in student affairs, and it's also really... Um, something that practitioner-based programs spend a lot of time helping guide people and teach them, okay, here's what's enough, here's not enough. But I think about case study work that we're always doing, trying to better understand how do we do this work. And that could be a way for student affairs to really lend more attention to that other side of the assessment cycle. What do we see as working well in the field and what students are responsive to and where we see our faculty really come out or where we see administrators and faculty really getting together in a way that's productive and, and makes a significant change to a problem or onto a campus issue, they probably have more insight on that. And could they come and be kind of the little bit more action-oriented stimulus for assessment work. And maybe there, there's some other models that we haven't yet realized. So I would entertain thinking with you about this and maybe some of your listeners about how we could really exploit in a very positive way the orientation and the expertise that Student Affairs brings that is more of that action, orientation, action on results. I found that there's a lot of fear when it comes to sharing some of the, the data, just kind of who should be talking about it, who should be talking about action plans. And there's just a lot of reservation. Like, for yes. example, I mean, so we are a heads institution, higher education data sharing consortium, and we administered the sexual assault campus climate surveys last year. And we had a good amount of, of faculty and staff in a room talking about the findings, came out of our meeting with a good amount of action plans in terms of how we're going to use the data. But leading up to it, there were, you know, some conversations I need to have like, Hey, we're, we're okay. You know, I can, I can share this information and, and people are equipped to use it and oh, it's, it's going to be okay. But yeah. people were very nervous. I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it, not only are you dealing with an already sensitive right. topic, the sensitive subject matter, it's not like we're dealing with, you know, how do we help more students study abroad, which is, maybe has some sensitivities, but is a positive thing sure. in general. So you're already dealing with a sensitive topic and the trauma that if students or faculty or anybody else in the room has experience could be re-traumatizing. So there's a level of sensitivity as facilitators you need to make sure you have. Yeah. But then there's the reality of what do the results say and what is it that we know about ourselves and what happens if it confirms beliefs that we already had about our environment or our students' experience or where we maybe fall short right. of providing a full accountability to students who have been sexually assaulted or the other side ensuring that students are served well in student conduct, that, you know, we need to make sure. So it could, I mean, it's a, it's a natural reaction to feel like we're critiquing our own performance here, but right. it's true, and that's what assessment is supposed to reveal so, yeah, yeah, it's really difficult. How do, yeah. we, how do we do that? So applying the right sensitivities to yeah. the subject, to the context, who has a stake in it, why might there be reservations and trepidations around this? But I think, you know, I've heard Gavin Henning say this, how much assessment is a political act right. as much as it is action on evidence, which makes it sound much more neutral than it really is. It's been interesting just thinking about my time at, at Marion because I've, find it, maybe it's kind of tied with our core values or, 
or just the, the people that are here, but it's very learning centered and there's a lot of, you know, I mean, we talked about humbling earlier. I mean, there's a lot of humility when we talk about fi- findings and I, at previous institutions, people would get defensive and, and here it seems whether faculty or staff, it's just, we, we just want to improve. We just want to better serve that the students. That warms my heart. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. And to think about how do you cultivate that? Because I think that's a necessary condition for taking advantage of your students' feedback about Absolutely. their experience. So yeah. you've collected this sensitive information via the head survey, and you want to honor students' views and their expressions of need for support, you have to, as faculty, staff, people affiliated with the campus, have to have an orientation to respect that and to want to take action, and to not be defensive of yeah. your own work. It's, it's really hard. I, I, can, I can hear it in my own work. You know, I want to defend lots of things, whether that be the student voice or the quality of data and how much how important it is to our decision making, but I have to be sensitive to people who are working in those conditions and what might be influencing their position and stake in this topic. Another question I, I had for you was, you've worked at IU Center for Post-Secondary Research for around 20 years. In that time, how have you seen the, the center change and, and what do you see on the, on the horizon? Yes, it's true. <laughs> I have been there 20 years and that astounds me. But, you know, every day there's something interesting. And, you know, when I worked in student affairs and when I had a bad day or when I worked in academic affairs and had a bad day, I would always say that if I had three bad days in a row, then it was time to leave a place or really reconsider what I was doing here. And sometimes that happened and I did change some aspect of my work. And I would say that now I look for not necessarily bad days, but are there three days in a row where nothing new or interesting has captured my attention? If there are three days in a row where that doesn't happen, I think it is important to continue to, to really seriously evaluate whether you're going to remain in a role. And for me, it really hasn't happened. I might have one day, maybe two, but never three. And that's that says something. Every day there's something new that comes up either in the field or that I read about or that someone contacts us about the student experience that requires more thought and insights that I think we can serve. So for me, it, that's an important part. What's changed, I think, is we've always been a place at the center for um, and particularly Nessie, I realize that that's kind of the, you know, that is really the, the big operation, the enterprise, is honoring and asking students about their perspectives on the college experience and then bringing what research we know exists about that to frame those questions. But it really is, rests on that foundational work that our yeah. work has done. And I think it it takes a dozen years to establish that kind of foundation. So what have we been doing for the other, you know, half of that side? I think refinements, it's never perfect. It's never right. And if I think about all the things we've added to the survey experience for students, the topical modules, the better opportunities to ask good open-ended questions, to really make sure that campuses were getting the kind of reports that would facilitate their work, All of those refinements on a regular basis are critical to keeping a project like ours moving. And there are times when I do worry about how assessment work will be sustained in higher education. I think it can be really easy to suspend that as a practice when things get tough or when the pandemic happened or when we... Uh, start to really think about where can we cut back and where can we save some money or or not have as many people doing this kind of work or not do promotions to incentivize students' participation in our data collection efforts. That's not where we should shortchange our work. And that kind of evidence is is really important and we need to get better at making use of that evidence. So I think anything we can do to help stimulate use in the field anytime 
we can do work that um, provides an easier route for practitioners to take advantage of the data that they have, that's yeah. great. And that's what I would strive to do. We just got our 2023 reports. So we're digging in, digging in. <laughs> Excellent. So, <this laughs> I, very, as I knew you would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I get very excited. You know, when I get those emails from, you know, Nessie or, or heads of like, you know, here are your comparison reports. I'm like, Oh, it's, it's a Christmas feeling. That's a beautiful feeling. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me happy. We might be the only ones who have that point of view. And there are probably a few others who we can probably name on maybe two hands, but there it is. It is a, a, it is a small audience, but I think a very dedicated one. And I also want to go back to, you know, you mentioned the, the pandemic and, you know, it was pretty wild for me to read some of these listservs and people talking about, you know, we're they're you know, they're, uh, you know, not, not doing these things or, or their positions kind of getting repurposed at, at Marion. When I look back at some of the things that, that we've created and kind of our culture here, it was all 2019, 2020. It's just interesting to look at the institutions and, and how they responded differently. And absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot more we can still learn about the response and what, what was lost in that. And maybe that was a good thing (laughs) that some things fell to the wayside. And then I think there's also a need to recapture and relearn some of the things that we've done before that, that idea of kind of rebounding and both from a student engagement perspective, so what's happening in the student experience, but then also from a practitioner's and and educator standpoint. I think we need to rethink some of the things we do. Kind of sticking with the pandemic, I wanted to ask about all your work with high-impact practices. I know in 2018, I believe, you received grant funding from the Lumina Foundation to assess quality and equity in high-impact practices. Through your work, what have you learned about the specific benefits? Um, but then also, you know, you're, you're getting this grant in, in 2018. How has the pandemic impacted that work and kind of the current state of high-impact practices in higher ed? Yeah, it's been a really challenging time, and I'm glad you're pointing this out because I think the one, it, it was a tough time to have a grant to focus on practices that really required students to be highly interactive in in environments outside of their uh, academic setting and in uh, whether it be a global context or in an internship that just weren't happening. So here we are launching this project. And thankfully, we were able to rely on some data that had already been collected. But the pandemic definitely threw a wrench in what we had planned to do, which was to interview students about transformative learning experiences to really expand on our understanding about high-impact practices. And we were able to take advantage of a lot of the open-ended data that we had that allowed us to ask students about transformative experiences. And it went right up to the start of the pandemic. So we, we had some evidence But we're just finally getting back to that, feeling like we can start to examine from the student's point of view, what do you consider transformative? Because I don't think our list of 10 or 11 practices or even the ones that everybody is lobbying to add to the list of high-impact practices is it. I think there's a lot more transformational about the undergraduate experience that we just don't have a name for or that perhaps it hasn't risen to the level of our scrutiny in yeah. in terms of research and really studying it. So I, I don't think our idea uh, around high-impact practice is to close off and to somehow say, we have enough, a dozen, a baker's dozen, 13, that's it, or whatever we end yeah. up settling on. I don't think that's it. But I do want to make the point, or, and I've continued to make this as part of our work on the quality dimension, that we have to make sure that the practices, whatever it is, that we are assuring that there is, that it is representing the high quality elements. So that substantive interaction with faculty, the idea that students are uh, forming their own sense of accomplishment in whatever it is that they're doing, and they can name it and see yeah. what they have done, and they're reflecting on it. So all of those qualities have to be parts and intentional pedagogical elements 
of the experience. So that I will stick to strongly without worry about what it's called, what the thing is called or what, you know, how long it is. If it contains those things, that's, those are the quality dimensions. The other one that became ever more clear during the pandemic are the inequities that exist for students around transformational experience. And whether that be because their academic program is so constrained that they can't fit in a transformational or a high impact experience, or because they're the first in their family and the family doesn't value that experience, or their systematic biases right. in the, the program or the policies that uh, make one eligible for the high impact practice that are systematically biased or, or even racist in their um, effect. So we need to root out all of those issues as well. So there's still lots more to do on this. I think we've been great at expanding access and opportunities in, in many ways, but we have not quite made it on the equity dimension for yeah. not only different student identities, but just in general, uh, spreading these experiences so that one student doesn't have five experiences, or fine, let them have five experiences, and maybe the student next to them has two. So how do we clear up those inequities? Looking at our 2021 Nessie findings, specifically senior student participation in high-impact practices, and for those who are listening who may not know that term, we're talking about undergraduate research, internships, study abroad, the list goes on. I think there there are learning 10. communities. Learning communities, yeah. 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 But we found that students of color participated in an internship and held a formal leadership role at a lower rate than our white senior students. This is going to be something that, you know, we continue to keep an eye on moving forward. I'm just curious, you know, what what do you think assessment professionals can do to better examine high impact practices on on their campuses? and ensure underrepresented students have access to high-quality experiences well, like you're talking thank about. Well, you. thank you for taking that on. It's, it's at a really, it requires a, a whole campus effort for sure. Mm-hmm. But I think as assessment professionals in particular can, one, collect data about this, harness the data they have, maybe try and think about all the different sources of information about these kinds of experiences. I think off units like career services are undervalued in what they know about the kinds of experiences that employers want and that their students have. So one outreach might be, let's bring some career service staff who have been working with students directly for a long time now and say, what is it that you see students like to trumpet about their their experience Mm -hmm. and that employers seem to find helpful, useful, interesting about the students? And what might we learn about those things to make them more readily available? And that may be unique to Marion or unique to another institution, that that's already happening. So I think there are lots of sources of information that assessment professionals could say. Who else could either provide some information or insights on this? And then who might be needed to be around the table to interpret the data we have Mm -hmm. about where we might make some additional outreach or develop some more formal means to introduce students to. You know, one of the, the barriers I think what, what continues to get in the way of achieving greater equity is just students' awareness and knowledge of the value of these experiences. So to me, that's something that assessment professionals can provide some evidence right. of and for. Here's what these things are. Here's where you can find them. Here's how much our students do of them. Here's what we would like to see students do more of. So setting some perhaps thresholds or some indicators for yeah. what might be achievable at a place like yours. And then holding people accountable to, to do the hard things like our internships is, are still not where they should be among our students through our various student identity groups. I think all of those accountability, asking the right questions, assembling the right people to interpret the data are all things that an assessment practitioner can do to really help advance quality and equity in HIPS. We've actually added items about HIPS to um, our annual assessment report, um, which at at Marion, I mean, is just a short 
think there's like eight items, but you know, just how are you using the data? Yeah. Um, what, what are you learning? And we, we added a question about all of the high impact practices. I, well, not all, I think there's like seven on there, but just where are you providing students yeah, with opportunities <laughs> for this? And yeah. we've been surprised at how many examples that the programs are providing back of here's how we're you know, supporting these, these, do you things. remember any of them? What, what, what are some of that? Stuff I mean, out? just like specific course, you know, like when we, when we ask about Intensive internships courses. in the okay. program, it's like, okay, here are these three spots in our curriculum where they do it. And it's, there's really at this point, I can't think of any where they go, no, we don't do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah, they're, yeah. they're addressing all yeah. of them and it's so really they can impressive. See it in the curriculum and even point to it. Here are the three instances where, yeah, yeah, that's great. I think that kind of mapping and identification, you know, my only next challenge to them would be, all right, you know it. How do you communicate right. this to your students? And to make sure that staff in the office understand, ah, oh, there's some logic to this, Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, because everybody can reinforce it. And with that too, everybody can also depress it if they don't acknowledge where this is supposed to happen or say, oh, you can just ignore that. Don't worry about that. What you're trying to do with uh, X, Y, and Z is is fine and that'll be. No, if this is really an important objective and the department or the unit defines it as being transformative, then we we all need to be on the same page yeah. about how important it is. So yeah. no waivers, no, yeah, no exceptions. <laughs> right. This is this is what we're going to do. I mean, again, I, I think it speaks to the, the learning centeredness of, yeah. of, of Marion. Cause I mean, I've, I mean, you know, I've been at other institutions where, you know, as the assessment person, you feel like, like the most hated person on, on <laughs> campus and, you know, not to say I'm, I'm going to win any popularity contest, but I, I do have people reaching out and, you know, wanting to just improve in, in these areas. And it's, it's wow, not that's so much wonderful. Like I mean, that teeth, speaks so. to the creation of a strong assessment culture. Yeah. Yeah, that people, you know, you've used several words, too, as we were talking about the humility and the learning centeredness. And I think all of those things are part of what creates that culture. It's it's not any one person. It really is about imbuing it with the qualities that make people receptive to information and make yeah. them want to ask the questions. And, you know, ultimately, it is about valuing student voice. If you have right. a group of people who don't think that students can weigh in on topics or have anything to contribute except for how they perform in your classroom or how they take on student leadership opportunities. You know, it's a very narrow view of yeah. what students see and observe in the environment. Yeah. 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 And sometimes it could be kind of, um, you know, in terms of the, the student voice, you know, people really want to hear the student voice and sometimes I oversee like our, our Qualtrics account, you know, people use it. And, and sometimes I'm, <laughs> I'm getting emails about these surveys and sometimes I'm like, guys, we need to go easy on yeah. this stuff. You know, it's great that you're so passionate. <laughs> Too <but>. much feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the other thing I'm curious about from, from what you said was, you know, I know that there's a set number of, of high impact practices currently or the, or the number that's, you know, been around for, for a while, but you mentioned that that people have kind of proposed some. So, so what are some things that you know might be on the on the horizon? I mean, I know that student leadership hasn't been like formalized, but it's always been tied with that yeah. Nessie item set. Yeah, boy, I you know I don't know who wants to take responsibility for maintaining the official hip list. I think yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not Nessie's job, but. I think AAC and U has been a little bit of the de facto, although my colleagues Ken O'Donnell and John Zilvinskis and Jerry Today and Carleen Vandesen will always say that we should not make AAC and U or any other organization be the sole purveyors and monitors of uh, high impact practices. It really yeah. it belongs uh, in the field in a much wider sense, and I think the one thing that we're all probably committed to is just making sure that whatever experiences are identified as something we want to make sure more students have, that it at least represents the, well, I'm, I'm not going to set a threshold, but I think it needs to adhere at least to most of the quality principles for high impact practices. Otherwise, it's it's really an educationally vague or, or 
perhaps benign practice. I mean, it's just not going to live up to its full potential. So I do think that we need to do more to promote the quality elements. But with that said, there have been plenty of people lobbying for leadership, uh, student employment. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a recent uh, nomination for mock trial experiences, which Mm. is an intense or model UN experiences. And I think, well, all of those are pretty intense experiences where students take a lot of agency, they develop a lot of professional experience, they reflect, they have a lot of interaction. Okay, these might fall into that. So could there be a basket that might uh, describe intense student uh, experiences that might be classified as leadership opportunities that really have these qualities? And we then that, that can help bring more into the fold but still retain the attention to quality. A couple more questions. I know you've you've touched on on some of these. Give me your <laughs> hardest one. Well, it's kind of just selfishly, you know, like thinking about engaging how how I can better engage people in in assessment. You co-wrote the 2018 Nalora report, um, assessment that matters. This report shares findings from a nationwide survey of provosts from over 800 U.S. institutions. Among the most common assessment needs, over half of the provosts identified more faculty using the results of student learning assessment as a need. We've talked about, you know, using data, but I mean, what, what do you see, people like me, assessment professionals, you know, what can we do to just better engage faculty in, in using results? The faculty involvement is still the gold standard for assessment, but I think it's nuanced a little bit. And here's where I think it's a little bit different. I believe that the original ideas were akin to give faculty some data, maybe some interpretations of it, and say, please act on this. And that, and maybe having them be helpful and collecting program-level information mm-hmm. about learning outcomes. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty legit, important place for them to have a pretty significant stake. Yeah. But that was kind of, a, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but you get the idea. I think what it has turned into is how do we ensure that faculty are brought into conversations about what we need to ask questions about in the mm-hmm. first place, what we really want to understand and then how together we can work to bring all the evidence to bear on that topic and come to some common understandings, some shared understandings about what this means and what it might suggest for practice. So I think it's moved to a more complete, comprehensive involvement and also helping faculty explore their own questions so it's not my question as the assessment director or yeah. the one the university thinks we need to answer to satisfy accreditation requirements or to satisfy some external program review or evaluation, but it emerges from what as educators do you need to know about your students' learning or about how effective your teaching is to elicit the learning you want to see or how effective is this program to elicit the leadership development you want your students to have yeah. via this experience? So the question, I think, has shifted from one that's externally oriented or uh, imposed or just kind of drawn from a common pool of questions, you know, no, you know, kind of no stake at all in yeah. it, to what's meaningful to you as a faculty member? What do you want to know? We know they have questions. Let's let's bring that into the assessment work. So that's how I think it's changed over the last several years. And I think that's the kind of involvement that the provosts were, maybe they weren't saying it directly, but I think that's what their information in that report from 2018 was really suggesting is help me bring faculty into this by entertaining more of their questions and helping cultivate what they are interested in learning. That's how I want them to be involved. Not because they attended three workshops and learned this particular assessment technique. That seems pretty empty to me. So our institutional assessment committee, we have 
a subcommittee focused on institutional surveys. That group looks at what we're administering, not just the results and how we're going to use them, but also kind of what's the plan for the future? What are we doing next year? So it's not just me making these (laughs) decisions that impact everybody. Tony's fiefdom for assessment does not exist. (laughs) The other thing I was curious about, so I mean, we talked about engaging faculty and staff. One thing that's been a real challenge for me has been engaging students. I've tried to get them involved with our different assessment-related events, our assessment committees and and what we're doing. There's been varying degrees of, of success, but you know, it's 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 been a challenge and there's been some years where it's like just kind of non existent. Yeah. So I'm just curious, like, do you have any tips, you know, things that you've learned from your work and other colleagues about, you know, what what assessment professionals sure. can do to engage students? Yeah, yeah. I you know, I think it's it is something that's important. I would never deny the value of involving students in assessment in all fronts, all sides of it. Mm-hmm. So whether it's involving students in making decisions about what kind of tools are useful or might resonate with students or what kind of approaches might resonate for students, I think they can serve in an advisory capacity in that way that could really define their involvement. Maybe they're on, I, I think about our School of Education Advisory Board that has a bunch of students. And and that's a really useful, I think, meaningful way for students to be involved, to advise about assessment approaches. That's one way. Certainly any student who participates in assessment is involved, so I wouldn't undervalue that dimension. So just creating that sense of what's your responsibility as a student to respond to end-of-course evaluations, to give feedback, to fill out the suggestion sheet in the dining hall or whatever it is that you're being asked to do. So there's that kind of responsibility that students have. And then I think there's the perhaps slightly more curated experience where students are brought in to interpret evidence, or maybe they're even given a data set and they form their own impressions. Or the examples that I've heard from uh, our friends Charlie Blage and Kathy Wise at, at, at the higher education data sharing that teach people how to interview, or how I should say teach people how to teach students how to interview other students. So this whole idea of yeah. assessment um, interviewers that are students, that's wonderful. And then there are people who arrange actual groups of students. So they train them in research methods in both quantitative and qualitative approaches, and then basically turn them loose on the assessment data and say, tell us what you, you know, you're our research team here. Tell us what you learn. So that's a more formal educational experience. Students can earn credit for that. They can be paid to do that kind of work. I think those formal opportunities like that are also really valuable. So I think describing all the ways that students can be involved in this work might be a way to help others realize the value. So what here are the educational components, here are the ways it can be a learning experience, here are the ways it should just be built into our culture. Mm. And then everybody can help do that. So maybe it's teasing out and specifying some of those ways that students can be involved a little bit more. But I think there are some good examples of places that have done that well. Yeah, I know we've we've talked for last couple of years about, I think it's at, at BYU, it's a uh, students consulting on yeah, teaching. Those are and cool. have, yeah, yeah, and we're, we've like wanted to to do it, but I mean, it's such a, seems like such a big enterprise that they have there in terms of what the students yeah. are doing. Yeah, you're and, training, you know, you're essentially moving into a peer education yeah. kind of training model yeah. where you have to make sure that they know what they're doing, they don't feel overwhelmed or, you know, right. that it's reasonable for the scope. But I know I've looked at the program at UC Merced. They had a similar kind of where students can be good envoys and ambassadors for really challenging assessment or teaching and learning evaluation kinds of questions. They can help interpret. They can help achieve rapport with their peers much more quickly than I'll just say myself, you know, me as an older woman, you know, what is that? What does that mean? I'm not going to have the same rapport, but... Uh, if I can train a student to ask those questions, they're going to establish that level quicker. That's what we're after. So I think, but it does become, I think, a pretty uh, significant peer education, peer training program to undertake. All right, I hope you do it. Yeah, I know. It's it's always on my, you know, we do our annual 
performance evaluation. <laughs> it's been on your list, huh? I have to I have to look back and be like, oh gosh, I gotta do that, you know, and we talk about it. And so yeah, it's it's been on my performance evaluation every year and hey make good on it. I know just, I need to make just, it happen. And you know, I'll try a few students. There might yeah. be. I have one last thing and this really isn't a question. It's really more of a statement that I just want to have on record. I for those that, that don't know, I, I worked for Jillian from 2009 to 2012 in the the Nessie Institute and it was an an awesome experience for me. She was probably slightly underwhelmed, but I oh, I Tony, we can get into our mutual <laughs> admiration here because I admire your take on this work too. <laughs> well, I mean even though I, you know, haven't been at a, a ton of institutions, I've, you know, I've been at different places and at each place I've had multiple supervisors. So I've, I've worked for a lot of people and you, you are definitely on that, that Mount Rushmore of, of supervisors. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful for you. I have to say, so 2009, 2012, I worked for you in the Nessie Institute. 2014, the movie Boyhood hit theaters. My wife comes home and she tells me, Jillian invited us to go see Boyhood with her and her husband and Peter Magolda and Marsha Baxter Magolda. And she told you no. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I lost it. And I was like, how, what? And, and she goes, she's like, but, but you know, you don't, you don't like people. You don't like going out. And I'm like, and I remember telling her, yeah. That's true, but that does not apply oh, to Jillian. Well, and Tony, I, <laughs> you know, it's it's full circle, actually, to your opening questions about my foundation work in student yeah. affairs, because I think you know that Peter Magolda was my supervisor, my first job. Oh, I, I don't know if you know that. I did okay, not know oh, that. I didn't know that. Yes, so really nice full circle to what made my Miami University experience, my first job, so significant was because Peter Magolda hired me. Oh, wow. And supervised me. So there is your full circle moment. It doesn't get tighter than that. Yeah. Because we both got to, it, you got to author a chapter with right. Peter, too. And I'm very sorry to say that Peter passed away too soon in this world and in this work. And he is just someone who really had such an, an irreverent but so, so well-informed perspective on working with students and helping them achieve their own potential. Uh, it's, I've never met anyone like Peter. Yeah, I think I said, I, I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but like, you know, as a, as a doctoral student working for you or taking class with George Koo or driving... Pat Cross to McAllister. I mean, it was like, it was just crazy. I mean, it was just surreal. Like, I just couldn't believe that was, that was my life. And then, yeah, I think it was like, I want to say like 2016 or so, we started working on the, the, the chapter. And I mean, just to, I mean, it was, I just couldn't, I still can't believe it. Yeah. I'm like, I, I showed my daughter, you know, I get this gigantic, you know, and she's seven. She doesn't care. But I, you know, I get this. She was very impressed. I get this gigantic textbook. I'm like, you know, there's daddy with, you know, Peter Magolda. Well, you know, I, you know everyone should be impressed. But I, I will just say that anyone who's worked with Peter or been involved with him in any of the work he's done, it's his point of view on education and higher education is just like no one else's I've ever right. experienced. Yeah. I mean, I, I found him to be so, the you know, best I can describe it is just powerful. I remember, you know, you're sending drafts back and forth. And I mean, I think, I mean, maybe Zoom and WebEx existed, but at the time we weren't, you know, it was just all over phone and stuff. And I, I remember talking to him and I would send him drafts of, you know, my my part. And he, he would just, you know, my, my writing voice was just like, uh, could you, I strongly encourage, you might want to consider. And he's like, why are you talking like that? You know, just tell him to do it. It's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. So just tell him to do it. I'm like, oh, okay, Peter, you know. Like, yeah, that's so. exactly what he does with any student. And yeah. yeah it, but it's always about lifting up what your 
strengths are. It's, yeah. it's really remarkable. Yeah, so I really wish for more educators like that. Well, thank you for making it full circle, Tony. <laughs> yeah. So what do you, I, I know I've been getting all these emails um, about the, the Texas Association for Higher Education Assessment Annual Conference in September. What do you have coming up? Are you going to be at the Assessment Institute? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, more on the assessment angle for sure. Yeah. But I think the the part that I have not been working as much on that I really want to get back to that came out actually with the Radical Reimagining book is the focus on student success and redefining that. And I think that's where there's still a lot more to be done. So that's where I'm, I'll declare that I, I need to head next. And partly I'm saying this to hold myself accountable out loud is, is I put a lot of that on the back burner during the pandemic because like everybody else, we were just really doing what we could to keep going. Yeah. And I think now is the time to get back to that. And I also think that the pandemic has fundamentally changed how we think about student success. You know, it wasn't really the pandemic. It was all the social injustice issues that really came to a much greater knowledge and understanding in the world than ever before. I mean, those things have existed for a long time, but it wasn't until we really faced them more directly that we are really thinking about what they mean. So that's that's where I think is next. But plenty of assessment work to do along the way. The Texas Assessment Conference, the Assessment Institute that's coming up, I think a lot more on accreditation as well and trying to define that student success dimension. To me, you know, I'll just say accreditation to me has not held institutions accountable for the right dimensions of student success. Mm -hmm. uh, I understand the attractiveness of graduation and completion rates. And those are, you know, no denying important sure. measures, but they're not the end of what we're trying to do here. And nor are they a place to start and focus people's energies appropriately. We need to focus a lot more on not only the learning outcomes, but the quality of the educational experiences students are having. And that's what we need to make sure we're holding institutions accountable for. I mean, I definitely read your chapter, but I'm still, still working through the book. But yeah, for those that are interested. Um, radical reimagining for student success in higher education um, just recently came out. So definitely, definitely check it out. Yeah, yeah, some excellent contributors to that piece. Yeah. And I think it really represents uh, people who absolutely care about student learning and success in all sorts of roles. So, uh, you know, an institutional researcher is an author who's exceptional. And we've got a bunch of people who work in learning support and people who are faculty members full-time and a provost. So it's a really, it's a nice representation of points of view. Before we conclude, for those to our Marian listeners, the Catholic Identity and Mission Assessment New Student Survey will be sent out to uh, all first-year students. So that'll be kind of going throughout September. And then the Higher Education Data Sharing Consortium will be administering the uh, diversity and Equity Campus Climate Survey to all students, faculty, and staff uh, throughout October. So be on the lookout for for those, and um, you know I hope to have uh, the people I've been working with on those on a future episodes to talk about you know what they're what they're learning from the findings and how they're using those findings. But um, Jillian, thank you. I, I really just appreciate you making time to to come up here and and talk with me. Thanks, Tony. It was really fun. And I'm so pleased to hear about all the successes you've had in assessment. And it's all you. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks so much. So, and thank you to, uh, to all the listeners for joining us on this episode of Data Talk. <laughs>